Um, well, good morning. Uh, welcome. Uh, this morning is our first Sunday of, of Advent. Um, if you're not familiar with Advent, it's basically a season that the church has kind of historically um, paused to celebrate. Uh, Advent kind of comes from the Latin word Adventus, and it, it literally means coming or arrival, uh, usually of a dignitary uh, or somebody uh, of importance. And so we celebrate Advent uh, as Christians now by looking backwards to the first Advent of Christ, the first coming or arrival um, of Christ at Christmas time, celebrating his birth. But we also look ahead. We find ourselves in this in-between of the already of Christ come and the not yet of his second return, his second Advent. So as we look back, we also think uh, forward and, and um, uh, think about that as well. We've talked about the idea of this series that we'll do for the next uh, few weeks leading to Christmas. It's called Sent to Save. Why? Why did Jesus come? What was the purpose of his advent, um, of his coming? And traditionally, the church has kind of looked at uh, different themes throughout that, uh, uh, throughout Advent. We want to help you do that as well. So um, after the service, as you go out onto the plaza, there are Advent guides, uh, devotional guides that will kind of walk you through the weeks leading to Christmas. There's enough of those for, uh, for everyone. If you've got elementary age kids, we have Advent boxes for them, and those are one per family, and there's different crafts and, and different things in there that will help uh, your family walk through that as well. And so let me encourage you to go out to the uh, plaza and pick one of those up on your way out as well. The first week that the church is kind of a uh, theme that we celebrate uh, of week, uh, week one of Advent is the theme of hope. The theme of hope, that there's something about the coming of Christ into the world at Christmas and his second coming that offers us hope. And uh, the question is kind of begged then, hope for what? Um, and as we think about Jesus being sent to save, save us from what? And so let's uh, read our, te our teaching text this morning. This is going to be one of the most famous texts of the scripture, John chapter 3. And um, John 3.16 is probably the most quoted verse uh, in scripture, I would guess. You see that sign at sporting events and things like that. So let's read, but we're going to start in verse 14. Um, this is Jesus. He's speaking to Nicodemus. He's explaining to Nicodemus what it means to be born again spiritually. And he says this, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, uh, oh, sorry, verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Sent to save. That's what Jesus was sent for, to save us. Verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. So we think about uh, a lot of things in those verses, but there's some things that uh, are kind of bad news. Words that we don't really like hearing. Words like 
uh, judgment, words like condemned. Um, Charlie Dates, who's a, a great preacher, he says this in preaching or for us really in, in reading the scripture, uh, we can move so quickly to discovering the good news that we don't sufficiently sit with the bad news. The good news is good news because there's bad news. It's the bad news in the text or the scripture that reads us. It's the trauma and pain in the text that reveals us. Then it's the good news that reveals God and who he is. And so this morning, unfortunately, we're going to have to spend a little time uh, sufficiently sitting in the bad news, but that's because that will help us see um, how good the good news is. And so let's think about um, this question. What are we saved from? And so first thing I want us to notice in the text is that we're saved uh, from God's wrath and justice. We're saved from ourselves, our own sin, for sure. But, but what we're saved from is the, the uh, judgment of those sins. It's not very chic these days to talk of God's wrath, his condemnation or judgment. Uh, we don't like to talk about those things. We like our gods to be more accepting, uh, more tolerant. Uh, we don't like to dwell on the fact that God might be angry uh, about some things. And part of the reason for that is we misunderstand God's anger. We tend to think of God's anger like our own anger, um, right? And we don't like our own anger. We get embarrassed uh, when we get angry at times, right? When I get angry, it's often because I've, I've lost my temper. Um, I'm embarrassed because my ego, my self-centeredness, my image consciousness has, has been revealed. Uh, you know, I've been exposed, really, for, for, for who I am. And we don't like that. Um, I might have gotten angry because I was tired, um, I was a bit cranky. Maybe I had a bad day at work and something has set me off. I bring that home. And so we tend to think of anger in these kind of ways, in the ways that we get angry, the way we experience angry, the source of our anger and where that comes from. But God's anger is not like that at all. God's anger is categorically different from ours. We tend to see God's love and his wrath or his judgment as opposed to one another. We tend to see his love and his anger in intention. They exist, but they exist in tension. But that's not what the Bible shows us. The scripture shows us that they're not in tension, that they're actually necessary for each other, that God's love and his wrath establish one another, that they are meaningless apart from each other. And so it's important that we contemplate some of this this morning because, um, you know, A.W. Tozer says the, the most important thing about you is what you think about God. And if we have a distorted view of God, particularly of his anger or his love or any of his other attributes, then it distorts our reality. It distorts how we understand our life. And so it's important for us to stop and consider for a moment what we understand that the Lord is saying to us here in John 3. We've been working our way through Exodus. We've just finished the Ten Commandments, if you'll remember those. This is actually a, a, a good leaping point for us to dive into this this morning then. Because in those Ten Commandments, what we see is, is God reflecting his moral perfection to us. And his people, his, his, his chosen people, are meant to be an image of his moral excellency. They're not only set apart and consecrated to him, um, in every other way, but, but they are meant to display something of what God is like, whether it be through our worship. We're not to have other gods before him. We're not to have other idols, whether it's in how we establish our families, 
We're to honor our father and mother. Whether it's even how we deal with our possessions, we're not to covet our, our neighbor's house or, or his wife. God's people are to display to the world around them what their God is like. And not only is God unlimited by the created order, that is, theologians use the term, the aseity of God. That is that God is not contingent on anything else. You and I are contingent beings. We are contingent on being created, of being brought into existence. But God isn't like that. He stands outside of, of that. He's not contingent on anything. He is eternal. He is, he is self-existing. He stands outside of time and space. He's not bound by the same laws of physics that we are. He is completely and wholly other. He is categorically different than anything else. And so he is Lord of all. But his moral excellence radiates brighter than the sun. That's why Moses isn't able to look at him. We're going to see other people in the scripture who aren't able to actually see God. Um, lest they be blinded uh, in that moment. And God is not only perfection in himself itself, he is the very standard of morality. He is the very source of our sanctification as believers, right? It is the fruit of, of God, his spirit working its way out in us. He's the source of our morality, of our holiness. And so when we think of what is right, what is wrong, how then shall we live? Those things are determined by, rightly, by looking to him who is himself the truth, right? Jesus comes and says, I am the way, I am the truth. We often like Pontius Pilate ask that question, well, what is truth these days? Jesus has revealed that he is truth. He is the supreme, highest, greatest good that can be imagined. All good is measured against God for he is the greatest good. The idea that there are absolute moral standards that God upholds is abhorrent, isn't it, to a modern society? We, we kind of bristle at this idea. And if there is a God who judges, and it's clear by this text in verse 19, this is the judgment. Part of the judgment is, is just Jesus coming into the world as the light of the world because light does what it does. It exposes things. That's why if you go to a nightclub, it's kind of dark in there. No one goes to the nightclub and, hey, can we turn the lights on? I can't really see in here. No, we want to keep things in the shadows a little bit. And if we find the idea of a wrathful God who judges the world repugnant, it may be because we find the idea of absolute moral standards repugnant. But we know, don't we? We know in our heart of hearts that there is a universal right and wrong. We see this play out in secular culture all the time. We have high profile cases and we sit at the edge of our seat waiting to see what the verdict will be. Will justice be meted out or not? And when it, it doesn't, we protest. We, we write to congressmen. We want laws adjusted and changed. We saw the, the verdict of the Ahmaud Arbery case uh, this week that came out. Um, where the three men by a jury of their peers were deemed guilty of murdering him in the street. And his aunt afterwards said this. And, and what's interesting is that case almost didn't even go to trial. The first uh, prosecutor is now being prosecuted um, for kind of hiding evidence and not, not bringing it to light. It wasn't only until after the video evidence came out, second prosecutor had to be recused. 
And after a while, Ahmaud Arbery's, after the verdict, she said this. She said, all the pain, all the hurt, it lifted because I knew we finally got justice. We crave and demand justice in our world. But this is because we're hardwired this way. Proverbs itself says this, Proverbs 21, 15. When justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but a terror to evildoers. This hasn't always been um, kind of the norm though, right? The norm for most of human history was survival of the fittest. It wasn't seen to be wrong or immoral to attack and enslave the weak. The idea that that is wrong um, because even the weakest person is valuable as an image bearer of God came from the scriptures. That comes from, um, from God himself. We've seen that through established through his commandments to us. And so there's been a corrective to that, which is good. Um, but as we always do, we still twist things in our sin. And now culture elevates the individual so much so to the extent that no one can tell you as an individual what's right or what's wrong, right? We live into your truth. You live into your truth and I'll live into mine. You do what's right in your eyes and I'll do what's right in mine. Alan Bloom describes this. He's an American philosopher. This is what he says. He says, the only way in which we think today is we look back at history and we say, men always thought they were right. And it led to wars, slavery, xenophobia, racism, misogyny. The point today is not to correct those mistakes and be right, but rather we must all realize we were not right at all. So the point isn't to learn from our mistakes and to arrive at a truth that we can actually stand upon and agree on. It's just to wipe the whole thing slate clean. Hey, we're just all wrong about everything. And in this kind of atmosphere, society demands that we have a privatized God. We have a privatized God. You do what's right in your eyes and I'll do what's right in my own eyes. And our problem then is that we have, in our current cultural moment, we can't really agree on the values. We can't agree on ethics or morals. And we can't do that because science doesn't provide those things. Science can't give you ethics. Science can't give you morals. It can't give you values. It just gives you facts. It just gives you observations about what is. We see that all the time. Well, here, here are the facts. Well, we can't even agree that they're facts anymore, really. Right? But like, you know, it used to be at least we could agree on the facts, but then we would disagree on the implications of those facts, our, our ethics and our morals out of those. But only religion really provides that, ethics and morals of how we then should live. And so we have this conundrum because we think it leads to strife or conflict, and it, it certainly has, uh, when, when done wrongly, to believe that some religion is right with absolute moral standards and that our eternity, eternity is, de, is determined by a God who judges us by those standards. So on the one hand, we reject that, right? We, we, the light has come into the world. We reject it because we love evil. We love our, our sinful ways. We don't want to be exposed by that. And yet, on the other hand, we as a society say to each other, hey, be generous, especially this time of year. Hey, let's give to the homeless, those in need. Hey, you want to round up your bill at the till and we'll give the, the, the rest to a charity, right? Hey, you should, be, uh, you should be honest. We demand honesty from our public officials. Be honest. You should respect life. You should be ro uh, loyal, trustworthy. 
But my question is, without God and absolute moral standards, why? Why should I be generous? I'm going to take care of me and the people I care for, and you're kind of on your own. Why not lie if it benefits me? Why not? Why be loyal and trustworthy when I can actually uh, uh, manipulate things and I can actually elevate myself to a better, more comfortable place? Why not do those things? It actually doesn't make sense to be benevolent if it's a survival of the fittest kind of way. You see how we, we know that we should be these things, and we should, but without a God who actually displays why and, and how and empowers us to be those things, we end up um, with it being a bit hollow. C.S. Lewis, he describes it in his book, The Abolition of Man, uh, this way. He says, in a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and yet demand the function. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and then are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. We take away the idea of absolute morality and standards and then insist on people being moral. But it's our version of what we think morality should be. Okay, and so when we think about God's wrath, which is unfortunately the bad news part that we have to think about, right? We then begin to see what God's wrath is about. It's not crankiness. It's not, you know, ill-temperedness as we think about it. It's much more akin to a judicial wrath by the state, right? So if you break a law um, and the judge uh, sentences you, he may imprison you. Um, he may ban you from starting or owning a business or trading stocks, or you might lose voting rights. Like, there's a lot of ways that state kind of punishes us for those things. There's a settled opposition by the state to the lawbreaker until restitution is made or until a debt is paid. That might be a certain amount of time in prison. It might be whatever it may be, right? There's this kind of settled opposition. And the judge, the judge probably doesn't have the same vindictive feelings as the victim, it wasn't his house that was broken into and, and things stolen. A victim might feel more vindictive feelings of that. It's the judge's job to just have a steady, uh, firm opposition to law-breaking and evil in society. And that's much more akin to God's wrath. His wrath is holy. It's a settled opposition to evil. His holiness demands his opposition until the dead has been satisfied. And this is what we want, right? I mean, we get mad when tragedy happens. We shake our fist at God and we, we blame him for those things. Like we want God to act, enact justice. Do we want to live in a world where there is no justice? We want some level of equality of opportunity. We want fairness. We want wrongs to be dealt with. But here's our problem. Here's my problem. I want justice for others, and I want tolerance for me. And I have lots of different ways to justify my own actions, to justify my own kind of moral failings. 
I compare them to other people, not as bad as this, not as bad as that, or I have ways to kind of justify why I'm acting in a certain kind of way. I want tolerance for me, but man, I want justice demanded for others. But the scripture tells us we are all, as human beings, in the same boat. We've all sinned, and what we've earned, our wages for those sins, then is God's justice. It is, it is, his, it is our death. That we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, his, his absolute moral standards. And so we need saving from this sentence. We need saving from God's holy, righteous wrath against sin because we are sinners by nature and by choice. And so let's start to move the needle a little bit to the good news, the solution for this psalm. Second thing I want us to see is God's wrath or his anger is an expression of his love for his creation, including us as people. We might think, how can God be angry against sin and condemn? Isn't God love? Isn't, isn't that what we're supposed to focus at Christmas time? You know, God, God's a loving God. He's a caring God, right? Like uh, Will Ferrell in that movie Talladega Nights when he sits down to the dinner table to pray, if you've seen that, right? And he starts to pray. He's like, dear eight pound, six ounce baby Jesus. <laughs> and his, his, his wife, he's like, you don't have to pray to baby Jesus. Baby Jesus grew up. He's like, hey, I'll pray to whatever Jesus I want to pray to. I like the baby Jesus. And we're like that because baby Jesus is manageable. Baby Jesus is cute. He's non-threatening. He's not a king who's come to judge. But when we think about this, when we think about God's wrath actually being an expression of, our lo- of his love for us, it's the same thing that we feel. How do you feel when someone that you love, maybe parents, if it's your kids, someone that you love, family member, coworker, friend, you see their, their lives being ravaged by wrong choices, destructive habits, addiction, toxic relationships, do we just have a kind of neutral tolerance to that? Like, oh, well, sorry, that's, yeah, whatever. No, we don't. We get angry. We get angry that the addiction is making them less of the person that they should be. My daughter and I went, uh, for her birthday, went down to Long Beach and saw a comedian, John Mulaney. And if you know his comedy, he's kind of silly. It's like observational comedy. And so we went, and this was a, a very different show because About 85% of his show is him talking about the last few years of his life, which have included two stints in rehab for cocaine and prescription drug pills, a divorce, his his wife, uh, he he kind of shipwrecked his marriage, all kinds of different struggles. And what I found interesting in this show that he's talking about, he walks through um, the moment that he's kind of confronted. He thinks he's going to dinner with a college friend at their house, walks open, he opens the door, and 12 of his closest friends are there, and he knew immediately what, it, what was happening. He had literally just come from his drug dealer's house, right? And he walks in, he's like, no, like he knew. And he goes through telling the story. They literally had a suitcase packed for him and we're gonna take him to rehab that day, like in that moment. And that's what they did. Now, these aren't people who claim to follow Jesus or are motivated by the love of God or anything like that. And yet even them, they understand there's an, and he, he explains this like uh, in, in a funny comedic way, but like they're angry at each other. He's mad at them. They're mad at him. And these are people who love him, his closest people who love him and care for him. And they're mad because he's destroying his life. Now, think about that. 
Real love stands against the deception, the lies, the sin that destroys our life. Anger and love are inseparably bound in the human experience. And if we, as flawed, sinful human beings, can feel this much love and anger over someone's condition, how much more? How much infinitely more does a morally perfect God, a holy God, who is the creator of us, get angry at the sin that is destroying his creation? It's silly to think that love and anger are opposed to each other. Um, a philosopher once said, and I think there's some truth to this, love, uh, the opposite of, of love is hate, but the final stages of hate is apathy. We just don't care. Hey, I see there's destructive things happening in your life, but me, I'm just not gonna act on that. I'm not gonna do anything to intervene or to help or to come alongside of. Silly to think that love and anger must be opposed to each other. God is anger because there is a cancer working its way through all of his creation, both systemically, there's systemic evil in the world, but also individually, that's how systemic evil happens. It's made up of a bunch of individuals who, who work, it, work our sin out with each other. It would be completely unloving of God to have some kind of benign tolerance towards that. His love is what motivates his anger to act toward that sin. And it's what we're asking of God to do. When evil is done to us, we want that, we want justice for that. We know it's not right. We want these wrongs to be righted. This is what God is doing through the sending of his son for us. He's sending a light into the world and that light is a type of judgment because it exposes darkness. But for those who actually see the truth and the beauty of Christ and, and leave the darkness, leave those, that evil behind. And so the choice is us. Here, uh, the apostle Paul describes uh, God's wrath on evil in the world, unrighteousness. In verse uh, one of uh, sorry, in Romans 1, verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have, clearly, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. We are without excuse. Our conscience tells on us. We know that we are not uh, holy people. For although they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him. Why would you give thanks to a God if you don't, feel like you owe anything to that God. If God isn't the source, if you've earned everything, if you're self-sufficient, if, if you see yourself as the, the, the king of your kingdom, essentially, why would you give thanks to anybody else for those things, right? That's why we as society kind of start to turn what have been, you know, Christian holidays into more secular holidays. Thanksgiving's really about Food, what was it, Brian? Food, football, family, right? Now, those things are good gifts that God gives us, especially football. Um, 
right? So we are to enjoy those things, but we enjoy those things as a way to give thanks to God. Not apart from him. What's the result? We become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. We've made idols again. And what's the result of this? What's God's punishment on man for this? Parents, you'll understand this. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. He basically gives them what they want. Sometimes God's judgment on you is letting you have your way. Parents, you ever do this? You tell your kids, they don't listen, they don't listen, and finally you're like, okay, go for it. Now, hopefully it's not like ends in tragedy, but like, right? Sometimes you just have to learn the hard way. That is a judgment in itself. And we do this because we exchange the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. But, so here's God's wrath being poured out on unrighteousness. But his love is what motivates that. We see in Luke 19, Jesus, he's going to Jerusalem for the final time. He knows he's gonna be uh, executed on the cross. And he sees Jerusalem and he stops and he's weeping. He's overcome emotionally because of what he sees. Luke 19, 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, this is Jesus, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace. They've rejected him. They've rejected the Messiah. And so instead of peace, what's happening? But now... For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will leave no stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. God had come near, has visited you, and you've rejected him out of hand. And he's weeping because of that. He's weeping because they're not his enemies. He describes them as wanting to gather them together like a hen gathers its chicks. We see both weeping, heartbreaking over their rejection of truth, but also the results of that is condemnation, a holy anger that will have consequences. They're condemned already. Verse 18 in our text, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the one only son of God. In, in the, in, later on in this chapter, in verse 35, he says, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe in the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You're all, we're already condemned. We're, the wrath of God is already on us. Jesus doesn't come into a neutral world and decide, I'm gonna condemn you, I'm not gonna condemn you. We're already all condemned. We're already under the, the judgment and wrath of God. His coming is a sort of judgment. We see in verses 19, this is the judgment. The light, that is Jesus, has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because of our sin, because of our evil works. Those who come to the light 
receives the, the life of, of Jesus himself. Light exposes darkness. <coughs> we either hide in the darkness, continue to love evil over Christ. We continue to love the created over the creator, or we come into the light. John, later when he writes um, his letters in 1 John uh, chapter 1, this is what he'll, how he describes this those who are in the light and not. He says, this is the message we have heard from him uh, that is from Jesus and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. We lie to ourselves. We don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This is, this is us, right? We, as a society, we, we say, listen, we don't need God. We've rejected that. We don't have sin. What is sin? You live your truth. I'll live mine. There is no absolute standard. And God says, if this is the way we think we've deceived ourselves and the truth isn't in us. But if we'll confess our sins, he's faithful and what? Just. There's that justice element again. He is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, which leads us to our last point. Because how can God be just if he's just ignoring our sin? Which is our last observation. The greatest expression of both God's wrath and his love are seen at the cross. This is how these things are not held in tension, but how they exist because of one another. We see this in our text, verse 16. God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. He didn't send him in to condemn the world, but to save him. He does that through his own death. He takes on the punishment, the penalty that we deserved. Out of his great love for us, he's offered us a way to receive mercy instead of judgment. Come to the light of the world. Believe in Christ Jesus. Follow him. Repent of our, our sin. Turn from our evil ways. Come into the light and receive eternal life. And life to the full in this life. It's, it's obedience to Christ that actually leads us to flourishing in this life. And avoid judgment into eternal life. Or we remain in darkness and receive the consequences. We remain under the judgment of God that, that we were already under. I want us to look and, and see how glorious this is, friends, this morning. So if you're a Christian, this, I want us to rekindle our, our love for Christ in this because of what he has done for us. But this was always the plan. We get these, these glimpses of, of uh, Symbols of Christ and, and what he will do for us in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 6, we get this vision of, of the Lord of Isaiah. And, and he comes face to face with God in a sense. Here's what the scripture describes. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face because we can't look at the holiness of God. With two, he covered his feet. They're covering their, the, what is considered dirty and, and shameful in that culture. And with two, he flew. And one another called to the other saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Does this sound familiar? Do you remember what we've just, when Moses approaches God on the mountain, what happens? It shakes, it thunders, it's filled with smoke. And what is Isaiah's response to this? Woe is me. I'm a dead man. For I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Just him being in the presence of God. What, is he, what does he come to realize? His, his own darkness. That he is a man of unclean lips. And, and not just him, a whole, the people he belongs to. You can imagine him um, here. How petrified he must be. Surely he thinks he's going to be swallowed whole in this moment. His whole life flashing before his eyes. Never uh, before in the finitude of his existence and the sinfulness of his soul have been so exposed in this moment. And yet God's response is this. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs of the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. God cleanses him in that moment and says his sin has been removed. It's been atoned for. And this atoning of sin is this picture that we see throughout the Old Testament, right? Sacrifices have to be made. Blood has to be shed to cover the sins of the people. And here we have Isaiah. There's no escape from him. It's only confrontation of his own guilt and pollution. He stands condemned. He knows it. He sees, he, he feels it. And then he experiences God's love. But notice how he experiences love. It's not apart from God's holiness, but it's through it. It's because of his holiness. It's God's love that provides the atonement needed for his forgiveness, that his sin has been removed from him. It not only upholds, but it, it fulfills the conditions of God's divine holiness. Later on in the same um, book, Isaiah will say in chapter 53, now he's looking ahead to, to how sin will be atoned for. And he ha we have this prophecy that we read often at Christmas time um, about Jesus himself. And he asks the question, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Speaking of Jesus, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, grief as one with whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Martin Luther describes this as the great exchange. God takes all of our sin upon us. The scripture says that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. And God crushes him in that moment, the punishment that you and I deserved so that we might actually that his justice is enacted in that moment, but also that his love in the greatest expression, that our sins are atoned for, that he might rescue us. 
John Sott says it this way, man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. Yet God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be under the judgment of God. Tim Keller says, man takes prerogatives that only belong to God and yet God takes punishment that only belongs to man. God out of his love, for God so loved the world, that includes you, that he gave his only son to take all the wrath and punishment for your sin, for your evil, for my sin, for our, our collective systemic sin as humanity and deal with that with justly so that whoever believes on Jesus, whoever believes that that is actually what would save them from their sins, turn and repent from their ways, live in the light as he is in the light, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That, is that you this morning? Christian, if that is, I, 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 hope, I hope that taking a, a, Ecclesiastes says it's better to go into the house of mourning than it is to a party. And uh, you're like, that kind of isn't, like who wants to go to a funeral and who wants to go to a party or a wedding? But there's something about going to a funeral that, that brings us face to face with our own mortality. And there's something about seeing our own kind of sinfulness and the need uh, before a holy God for that to be dealt with, that just makes that, looking at just how dark things are, helps us just uh, love and appreciate the light so much more. That, that God loved us so much that he brought us from darkness into his marvelous light. That he gave us a way to escape the punishment of our sin and evil through the death and resurrection of his son, if we'll believe on him and trust on him for the forgiveness of our sins and turn and live for him. So here's some of the tests for you this morning. When you see your sin, of which we all do at some point, there's all things that we're ashamed of, our conscience tells on us. Does it drive you away from God or closer to him? Do we wanna hide that, those things in the shadows or do we wanna bring them into the cleansing light of the gospel. Allow the Lord to forgive us and draw us near again. Do you live without fear of judgment, of death, of your future? What others think of you? Are you afraid of meeting God this morning? We're told that we will all stand before him and have to give account of our lives at some point. Do you know how to deal with your conscience? Do we make excuses for our sin? Well, I'm not as bad as that person. I can be an expert at justifying my own sin. We blame it on our childhood, bad day. Or do we admit our failings? Do we admit our sinfulness? Bring those to the cross. Bring those to Jesus. Repent of our ways and receive the forgiveness that flows from the love of God to us through his son, Jesus. Today could be that day if you've never done that. It's as simple as, as just admitting to God, I, 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 that is me. This is me. I, I have rejected you. I, I haven't, I, I'm living for myself. I'm living under my own kind of morality. I want to turn from that. I want to trust in Jesus to forgive me and cleanse me of all of those things. You can do that today, right now. You can pray that simple prayer to the Lord. And for those of us that are followers of Jesus, 
man, this is how, this is, this is exactly how we become more like Jesus, isn't it? We live the same life of repentance because our sin, is in, is, our sin is dealt with as far as the penalty of it, but it's not dealt with as far as it's just gone. We still have to become more and more like Jesus. We live this life of repentance over and over. And we do that by gazing at Jesus and what he has done for us, allowing that to kindle the affections that we have for him, that our affections for sin might wane. This is why Jesus was sent. He was sent to save. Save us from ourselves. Save us from the wrath of God that we are born under already. Save us from that condemnation. Save us, save us from the justice that we deserve from a holy God. And all of that is motivated by his love. His love for us. Will you receive his love today? Will you renew that love today, that relationship with him? Maybe you've been trying to walk on your own. I have seasons like that in my life, honestly. They're usually the seasons that I'm struggling the most. I'm trying to do things on my own. I allow uh, guilt and shame to, to make me want to try to clean myself up so that I can kind of come to the Lord and not be as bad as I, as I, as I think I am. It just always ends in disaster. It always takes longer. Just come to Jesus this morning. His love for you. God's love delights in you. It rejoices in truth. It does what's right. It gives good gifts. He doesn't leave you or forsake you. He keeps no record of wrongs. He has good plans for you. He believes in you. His love protects, it defends, it keeps us safe. It perseveres. It means he has a purpose for you. All of that is found not apart from God, but in him and through him as we trust in him. May today be that day uh, for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious good news. We thank you that you didn't just leave us in, in the bad news. You didn't just leave us to kind of fend for ourselves and figure it out, but that you sent Jesus into the world as the light of the world. And some of that is painful because it reveals, it exposes but Father, that light also cleanses, it sanctifies. And so Spirit, I just pray that you would do what only you can do, that you would change hearts this morning, that you would woo people and draw people to yourself, that you would set your particular affection as you've chosen them upon them. Father, we ask this in your name for your glory and for our joy. Amen.